If you want to be at the tip of the spear of sports performance, the answer is simple. Simply Faster is your insider's edge to maximize results with the highest quality premier sports equipment in the business. Visit Simply Faster and level up. For me, I'm finishing up my finals here at Parkway Central, doing some uh, grading and thought I'd take a break out of grading to talk about some of the things that I regret. You know, when you come to the end of the semester, it really kind of brings some fine, uh, you know, finality to the things that we're doing and kind of makes you think about some of the things you wish you would have done and how you would have done things. And a lot of my students are going through that process right now. And even as teachers, I think we go through that process. Maybe there was a lesson plan we would have liked to have done, or maybe we ran out of time on a particular activity and you didn't get to it. So there's a lot of things that kind of come into play with that. For me as a coach, I oftentimes think back about a lot of really great things and positive things and, and things that have really shaped me and have been formative in my life from having really good parents to having good mentors. But also I talk about this, I've mentioned this in my 40 uh, things in 40 years, that you should also be thankful for the things that are regrettable, things that are not great people who have gotten in your way that you might even say are the demons in your life. And I know I've discussed that a lot. Um, for me, there are five things that kind of bother me or kind of are little echoes in the back of my head that I think about a lot. And as I move through the process of positive psychology and some of the things that I've tried to uh, do to make myself a better teacher and a better coach, I oftentimes want to try to reframe those things that have happened in the past and look at them from more of a positive in terms of them being a link in the chain of life or a stair stepping into something better for me as an individual, be it as a husband, a father, a teacher, or a coach. But, you know, when you, when you teach and, and you coach, there's always going to be things that you regret. Some of those things can be as silly as forgetting to assign a homework assignment uh, to something this final, you know, the finality of somebody taking their own life and a child that happened to be in your classroom. Um, for me, one of the things that I've battled over my time as a young person and, and with my personality and, and my energy is being able to um, not lose my composure with a student or an athlete or an entire classroom. Um, specifically, there have been a few times where I've, I've lost my cool. I've gotten more upset than I should have, and it was really unfair. And so for me, I look back at that, and I've lost that child or that group of people for a really long time. Now, luckily enough, I've had the opportunity to rebuild those relationships over time um, or have had the opportunity to wash out some of that bad stuff with a lot of positives, but that doesn't always happen. And so in particular, if you assign something and you're not grading it fairly or you've rushed through something and you get this you know, this little inkling in your head that maybe I shouldn't be doing this way. Maybe I'm cutting corners. You probably are, and you probably should step back from that and kind of think about how can I do this better? How can I do this stronger? Um, how can I, you know, take ownership of the job that I've been bestowed by, you know, the community and, and my peers? And I can remember a few times where I've lost my cool and I've gotten really angry to the point of, of not necessarily, I'm not going to, do anything unsafe or, or lose my job or anything like that. But I lost that relationship with that kid. And lo and behold, you know, either the kid, um, you know, 
never really connected with me in the classroom ever again. And they can't really switch out a class for just me being loud or, or upset. But, um, you know, in a sport, you know, those kids won't come back. The kid might quit. Kid might finish through the season, but never return. And that athlete could be somebody who has a lot of potential. Now, I'm not saying that you don't get frustrated or you don't get mad. That stuff happens all the time. And sometimes there's reasons to elevate our voice, to get a point across, to let them know that this is not acceptable in their behavior. But there's a way of doing that's constructive, and then there's a way of doing that's that's destructive. And I've done both. Um, thankfully, I've worked really hard at trying to prepare my students, my athletes, for who I am and what I'm about. I've worked harder to circle back quicker um, to a situation, to be able to apologize to people, to take ownership of something that I did wrong as opposed to getting angry and getting defensive. Now, that doesn't mean it always happens. It doesn't mean I'm always perfect by no means. This is a lifelong struggle, a tug of war with your with your biology and your hormones and your own nature with what the world finds acceptable. And the biggest thing that I've learned from these situations is if I feel myself going in that direction, I will immediately apologize to the to the students or to the athletes as quickly as I recognize it. Um, I'm not afraid to reach out via email or phone call home to a parent or to a kid. It's better to do those type of things and be proactive than letting the situation fester or sit and just act like it's gonna be okay the next day. Now, the other thing that I try to do is I try to make sure that with those athletes or with those students, that once the conversation is done, that it's pretty much over with as long as the behavior has been addressed and the punishment or the repercussions or whatever has been dealt out and that you come back and tomorrow we're, we're good again. Now, that doesn't mean that the kid is going to be good with you right away. They're not going to necessarily be, yeah, okay, everything's fine. That's not realistic. But you've got to present that. You've got to be that way because it's really, as the educator, as the coach, it's our responsibility to create that bridge um, and to, to reach out and, and to be that olive branch when you lose composure. Because there's a group of kids, I know, in fact, uh, a couple of years ago that I had a, a classroom of students um, that I didn't didn't gel with for whatever reason. It was just a bad mix of, of kids, a bad time of the day, uh, me not being as prepared or as um, set up in terms of my classroom expectations and, and my presence in the room as I should have. And because of that, you know, it was not a good situation for those kids and it wasn't a good situation for me. And a lot of those students, I failed to reach and teach every day. And it haunts me. But all that being said, recognizing that it's an issue is a good step in the right direction. So since then, I've worked really hard to try to be more on the ball with some of the things that created that tension um, to make sure that I'm not allowing some behaviors to exist that I think are minor, and then they kind of grow and blow up into bigger things. And I've talked a lot about that with a particular track team that I had. But this happens in the classroom, too. Even when you're delving out grades, it can happen. And it's something that we need to be aware of. Um, and those things bother me because I will never get another chance to rebuild a relationship with those kids once they've left this building if it ended badly. 
unless they take it out of themselves to come back and say, hey, you know, I was really wrong for that. And then he provides me an opportunity to say, well, yeah, it might not have been the best way to handle it, but me as the professional, it was on me to handle that better too. And I apologize. And it's bothered me since then. And, and I've worked really hard to become a better teacher and a better coach because of it. Number two, whether you guys know this or not, I, I was an athlete that was injured very, very, very much. I was an early mature, so I was really fast right away. Um, I was physically imposing at a young age. Now I'm not. You know, when people hear that, they're like, whatever. But being this size as a sixth grader brings a little bit of oomph to things. And so for me, I was an athlete that didn't take things seriously in terms of warming up and cooling down. I was the last one to do that all the time. It took so much work to try to get myself to be able to do those little things to be prepared for whatever I was going to do in the day. And unfortunately, I paid the price for that. And I got hurt a lot. And I got injured a lot. And my career as an athlete never met what it was meant to be. And a lot of coaches have that battle. If you look at a lot of coaches, oh, I wish I could have done this, or I felt like I failed here. And then coaching has allowed them that next opportunity to work on those demons and those things that they've got that have really kind of bothered them. And so for me, you know, my injuries were a huge problem. I tore my hamstring multiple times. I injured it multiple times and it kept me from being as competitive as I would have liked to have been. Now, there's nothing I can do about it. I've had surgery on my hamstrings and I'm over the hill. I'm old and fat and bald and, and there's nothing that I'm going to be able to do athletically that will ever be as meaningful or as game changing or as helpful as I can do as an educator and as a coach. But what it has allowed me to do as a coach is to be super diligent to the point of being obsessive about trying to keep my athletes healthy and doing the things that are necessary. There are a lot of people out there that believe you don't need to warm up. You don't need to cool down. You don't need to stretch. Well, how are we going to reduce injuries? Yes, it may lower the performance level on that particular day, but I'd rather lose a percent of performance than a month to a catastrophic injury. Let me say that again. I'd rather lose a percent of performance than a month to catastrophic injury. And so I've taken along upon the philosophy of slow cooking the meat, so to speak. And we take a lot of time doing drills and warming up and being prepared for an athletic contest through practice and through our routines and through our training so that when we get to competition, we are armed with those skills and drills and preparatory scaffolding so that our athletes have something that they can do so that they don't lose a large portion of their career. I was a varsity runner as a freshman in high school on a very good high school team at the time that had multiple all-state returning medalists. And because I got injured over and over and over again, I never achieved really much outside of my freshman year high school track and field season. Now in college, I was able to somewhat figure those things out and I had some autonomy um, and I learned some of those lessons the hard way and I was able to either survive an indoor season or an outdoor season, but I was never able to survive both injury free. And so every time you pull that hamstring, it's just that much harder to come back, that much harder to prepare. So one of the things that kind of builds into that is one of the things I've learned from my experience as a coach and my grammar here on point number three is incorrect, but that's okay. We're going to move past that is that loading my athletes too much, 
there are many times where when you get to become a coach who knows that you can get your athletes to work hard and to improve through hard work, you always feel like, well, more is better. And even more than that is better still. And even more than that is better still. And unfortunately, as a coach, I have pushed the envelope at times to where a kid or an athlete eventually either doesn't perform as well as they're supposed to, they don't reach the peak at the right time, maybe they peak way too soon in the season, maybe they're flat, maybe they get ferritin and iron deficient. These are things that when we load our athletes continuously, just because they can handle it in practice, doesn't mean it's always wise because on the back end, they may not perform the way that you need them to. And so finding that magical level of what you do in practice is very individual. And it took me a really long time to figure that out. So much to the point that there were athletes that I coached that got too muscled up. You know, they were too buff and they were too strong for the sport. And I know that sounds silly, but you know, in the world of track and field, you know, every extra pound of meat requires a heck of a lot more output to overcome that added mass to make that inertia and, and velocity do the things that you want it to do. And so while I was busy building bodybuilders, I not, was not necessarily building the best athletes. And so that's something that took me a really long time to figure out is what's good enough. So we've talked about this with strength training, uh, with uh, Derek Hansen's Zoom pop, uh, things that he does every Sunday, where we have athletes that, you know, if you look at the fastest people in the world, their squats two and a half times or two times uh, bigger than their body weight. After that, why do we need to squat anymore? The fastest men and women in the world, that's what their squat was. So going beyond that probably is silly, but not getting to that is also silly. When you're dealing with distance runners, do you need to run 100 miles a week when 40 miles will suffice? If the athlete is still getting better off of 25 to 30 miles a week, do you still need to move the athlete up? Maybe the athlete doesn't need to run mileage all the time. Maybe the athlete can rotate between speed, power workouts, and then distance workouts, or even better, speed, power, distance, and then cross strength. These are things that took me a long time to figure out because oftentimes when you're dealing with high school kids, they improve in spite of you, not because of you. I want to be the coach that my athletes improve because of me. Number four, this seems like a really specific one, and it's kind of silly before we get to a, a serious one, is not running my athletes in a 4x4 four four in 2003. In 2003, as you guys know, that was my very first season as a high school track and field coach, as a head coach um, for the girls' track and field team here at Parkway Central. And I know that the pictures are, are blurry behind you, but we have a 4x4 four four state championship up there along with a 4x8 state championship. But when I was uh, in my first year of coaching, the only thing I cared about were the short sprints, the four by one and the four by two. I knew the kids liked to run them. So that's what we ran. That's what we did. I didn't, you know, worry about any of the other events because it was like, this is all we're going to do. And this is what we're going to be great at because this is what the kids want to do. Well, yeah, you want to make sure that they, the kids want to do it. But that's our job is to make those things that aren't as convenient, that aren't as easy to do. That's our job to get them willing to do it for themselves, for the team, and to buy into the things that you were doing. But I was so deftly afraid that the kids wouldn't give me a good effort, they wouldn't work hard, that I didn't run a 4 by 4 of any kind of note that first season. And on that team, I had the school record holder at the time in the 400-meter dash, 
I had the 200 meter different kid school record holder who was also the 100 meter school record holder. And I had a, a sophomore that was the second fastest girl in the 100 and in the 200. And then I had a young lady who would eventually be a NEIA All-American in the decathlon. And I didn't run a four by four. Now, what's the lesson there? The lesson is as a coach, if you know there is something that is going to make your team successful, sometimes the path of least resistance is the worst thing you can choose. Sometimes you have to go through the path of resistance because the end all goal and what you're going to create for your team and what you're going to create for that individual will be way more than the difficult, awkward phase of getting those kids to believe in what you're trying to do. And we know we joke about the four by four all the time. You got the memes of people hiding in trees and, and, you know, acting like they're dead or, or, you know, there's all this mess. We're still running the four by four, you know, all those kind of tough guy memes. But the reality is, is that we've got to get our athletes to the point where they're willing to accept those challenges, no matter how scary they are. And that's one of the things you got to know. It's scary to do stuff you're uncomfortable with. It's scary to try stuff that's new. It's scary to do things that make you uncomfortable. But nothing you do ever has a complete comfort. Nothing you do is the absence of discomfort. If you're really pushing, if you're really working hard, there's always going to be a little bit of stress. There's always going to be something that's scary. You know, I had to give a speech uh, to the incoming college freshman because I was the principal or the, sorry, the president of my student body in college, which nobody would have ever believed that I was going to be able to do when I was in high school. So there were some things that went on there that I kind of stretched myself and my abilities and things like that. But I had to give a speech to about, you know, four to 5,000 people that were coming in on that freshman orientation day. So everybody's mom, dad, grandma, all the kids are there, a lot of staff. Uh, Paul Ryan was there. The, the mayor of Kenosha was there, you know, all these people. And I had to give a speech and it was so scary. But at the same point, that was transformative for me. If I would have never been forced to give that speech to such a large group, I would never be able to do the things that I'm doing right now, knowing that some people will hear this and think that, oh, what does that guy know? He doesn't know anything. He doesn't have these kids or he doesn't do this or they don't do that or I don't agree with his philosophy or, you know, he's got all these. He wrote a book and he can't even put a sentence together. You know, when he puts it down on paper, he's got so many grammatical errors. Yeah, I know that. But I don't care as much anymore. I'm willing to accept that discomfort. I'm willing to accept that criticism because I feel like there's something of value that I have for people. And even though it might not be for everybody, even though some people might not care or instantly discredit me, if I can help one person or one kid or one athlete or one coach or one family member or friend, that means the world to me, which gets me to point number five, which is my last one. Long time ago, um, when I was a real young kid, I only had one friend, and that kid, that that friend was Todd Harris. And uh, you know, Todd Harris was you know the class clown and the goofy guy and and all that kind of stuff. But he was my he was my best friend. And without Todd, you know, I would have no friends. There would have been nobody that would have been there for me um, through my time and my experience growing up. I'd have been a really, really, really lonely kid. But as time went on, Todd and I kind of split up. Todd kind of hung out with a crew of dudes that wasn't really the best guys on the planet. And I was very 
selfish as a high school kid would be at that time. And I didn't have the words or the, the ability to pull Todd, even with all our history, back into our fold with our group, that he didn't have to go that direction. And over a long period of time, you know, Todd made some bad choices and poor choices and things like that um, that weren't the best when it came to drinking and some other things that he was doing. And I pulled even farther away because I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to be involved in those things. As we graduated high school, you know, and you start to reminisce and you start to be a little nostalgic and you think about the things that have gone on in your life. I felt a big hole in my heart because my best friend that I used to spend every day with and we'd go hang out and, and stay up till the wee hours of the night playing video games or shooting baskets in our front yard or playing, you know, flashlight tag or, or whatever, even protected each other in fights in the neighborhood and, and things like that. I, I lost that, that life, you know, I lost that experience because Todd and I didn't have that relationship. And so, you know, I kind of made a point that I was going to reach back out to Todd and, you know, that I thought Todd, you know, we were grown enough and matured enough that we could kind of reconnect and have a good experience. And unfortunately, in my sophomore year of college, first semester, Todd passed away. He died in a car wreck. And I never got the opportunity to tell Todd, you know, I love you, man. And, you know, even though we knew that shared history and even though we had that experience and we, we kind of talked around that a lot, we never really had that opportunity. I never got to thank him for being the best friend that a guy could ever have growing up, even when I was goofy and weird and, you know, was one of those kids that probably very few people wanted to hang out with. But he hung out with me. He was my buddy. He was my best friend. He protected me. He had my back. And I never got to thank him for that. And the worst thing of all is that during his eulogy of his funeral, here's this guy who has no problem talking in front of a camera, no problem, you know, self-promoting and saying, hey, I want to come to your clinic and talk and I'll present and, and thinks really highly of himself in a public forum like I do, you know, which some of you guys probably think. And you'd be right to, I guess, think that and, and it's okay. But I, I could not finish the eulogy for Todd. And it bothers me today because I did not get to honor him in the way that he should have been honored because I was the only one who knew Todd when he was a young guy, knew Todd before he got into high school, knew him as my best friend, the guy who always had my back, the guy who always made me laugh, the guy who loved me and welcomed me into his house daily. Never had that chance. And then I didn't have a chance to tell him I loved him when he was here on this planet. So what drives me from this? What, what pushes me from this experience? Very simple. If there's someone out there that you have a problem with, that you have a long history with, that you're a friend with or a family member or somebody you love or somebody you care or you have something that's nagging you and bothering you that you regret that bothers you, don't let it just be motivation for future relationships and future things that endeavors you're going to be a part of. Make it something that you have a good end of story to. Hey, I reached out. We're friends again. We're buddies. We have this history. I feel like we closed the door on that chapter. We had closure. 
We squashed our beef, whatever it may be, because you never know when you're going to have that chance back. And even though you may not feel like you should be the person that reaches out that needs to do it, do it. Make it happen because you may pass up on that last opportunity. We're not on God's green earth forever. We're not going to be here forever. Our time will pass. We will be forgotten no matter how influential, no matter how great we are. So the only things you got while you're here are those relationships. That's what makes us wealthy is our relationships, not how much coin we have, not how much money we have. So don't just let it be a motivator. Let it be something that you take care of today. Call that family member up. Call that friend up. And it doesn't even have to be a bad thing. It doesn't have to be somebody you have a, a poor situation with. It could be a good relationship. But let them know how important they were to you. Let them know how special they were to your life and how much of a role they played in making you who you are today, for good or for worse, for, for, for the learning for the good, learning from the bad, vicariously or direct instruction. Let them know. Because you just never know when they're not going to be around anymore for you to be able to say, hey, I love you, or hey, I'm sorry, or hey, where, where, did, we, where did we go wrong? Why did this happen? You know, and try to reconnect. All right, guys. Uh, love you. 